We have to figure out how to make complexity less scary for people. You're listening to Our Shared Field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille, and welcome to the second conversation of the season. First, I'll be interviewing ecological artist Aviva Romani, whose piece, Blued Trees Symphony, was the first time I'd heard about an artist using artist copyright law. In this case, Aviva wrote a symphony for a forest in order to save it from a natural gas pipeline. Next week, I'll be sitting down with Philadelphia tree enthusiast and lawyer, Marcus Ferreira, before we all come together the following week for the third part of this conversation. Stay tuned to hear it unfold. Today, Aviva and I talked about how she became an ecological artist, the broader role of art in the battle against climate change, and the development of her idea, trigger point theory. My name is Aviva Romani. I am an ecological artist. That means that I try to analyze degraded environments to see exactly what's causing the problems and to design solutions. The work that I do now is grounded in ecofeminism, and I came to ecofeminism indirectly because my father was a land developer. And when I was very young, actually, I wanted to do the kinds of things I saw him doing, which were massive movings of earth. And then when I got a little older, I decided that I wanted to do exactly the opposite. I wanted to fix all the damage that I thought he and people like him had done. Hmm, I didn't know that. Aviva, you specifically define yourself as an ecological artist. Uh, Can you talk about the difference between land art, environmental art, and ecological art? I know sometimes those terms are used interchangeably, but language seems to really matter here. It's true that these terms are often used interchangeably and without much reference to the depth of practice in each of those genres. Land art is mostly the work that was done in the 60s, mostly by men, and mostly boys with big toys moving massive amounts of earth around, creating sculpture on the land as large as they possibly could. Environmental art, they're working with the materials of nature, but not really changing a system. Ecological art, I would say, addresses the problem of systems as a sculptural challenge, very deeply grounded in conceptual thinking, going back to conceptual art in the 60s and 70s. So when I look at a landscape, I'm not just looking at the trees and the water. I'm also looking at how does that habitat fit into a much larger landscape pattern and how is it threatened by issues that may not be self-evident. For example, how we apply eminent domain law Mm. when a corporation might take over 
large tracts of land and then degrade that land. Yeah, there's one particular phrase I've heard you use in the past. You say, an artist-conceived approach to environmental restoration. Uh, Where is the distinction for you between an artist approaching a restoration project and, say, an ecologist? It's relatively recent in human cultural history that we have separated art and science. The separation between art and science goes along with a lot of separations and fragmentation that developed from the point of the Age of Enlightenment, which was really grounded in maximizing capitalist extraction of labor from people. So if you specialize the sciences and then even further silo the sciences into a thousand different disciplines, you get a lot of people who are working really hard on a small area of knowledge. What you don't get is how the pieces fit together. What I think artists are really good at is seeing how those pieces fit together. And we do that from a combination of skills that are fostered in art training to focus how we use our intuition and a native curiosity or interest in really paying careful attention to what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. It's a way of thinking about the world that's much more holistic instead of broken down into component parts. Since Aviva has been collaborating with scientists over the course of her career on many different projects, I asked her what that relationship has looked like or how she would like it to shift in the future. She began by addressing the larger issues that she sees in the field. I think that most of us who think about these things are aware that we have serious system challenges. The problem that I see is that scientists may be very well aware that they have to enlarge their perception of how they might work in the world or or collaborate with artists. So they come to a problem and they say, oh, we need some artists. And what they really mean is we need somebody to propagandize our point of view and to illustrate our brilliant ideas and solutions. Very few people outside of the arts really understand what an artist is or what it means to create art. They associate art with something you hang on the wall or pass in a lobby. And it is entertaining and pleasant and calming. And then you can go back to some Pollyanna world where there are no problems and all the systems are just fine. The kind of art that interests me subverts those systems, questions them, not for the purpose of an anarchistic world, but it's like a kid with a toy when you start pulling apart the radio. Let's see how this thing works and let's see if we can make it work better. Mm, I really like that idea of using art as a mode of problem solving. Um, I'd love to hear you talk more about your Blue Tree Symphony project, as that was the first piece of yours that I really became familiar with. The way that you were able to weave together art with ecology, with community, with the law is fascinating. Before I began the Blue Trees Symphony, I was at my wit's end 
about fossil fuels. And I was also working on articulating a theory of ecological restoration, which I call trigger point theory as aesthetic activism. This idea of trigger point theory as Aviva has developed it is the idea that small points of carefully selected intervention might actually affect large systemic transformations, and specifically intervention using art. At that point, I was approached by a small group of anti-fracking activists. These activists asked me, well, what could we copyright in uh, New Upper New York State at the time? And they, at the time, they suggested, can we copyright the trees? And my response was, no, we can't copyright the trees because that's what Monsanto does. So that's a really bad model. But what we can do is we can copyright the relationships between the people, the trees, the earth, and the watershed as one complete artwork, as an installation that crosses the entire continent, punctuated by measures across the landscape that have been transformed by taking one third mile at a time, which I called a measure, in the corridors where they want to put the natural gas pipelines, where each tree would be designated as what I would call a tree note to create an actual score. And that was what became the symphony. So that was the end goal. How do we rethink the legal theory of ownership to truly serve the whole earth? I'm curious, is there an aspect of maintenance to the project? Like, do you have to go back and repaint these trees in order to maintain that copyright? Or is it now protected uh, forever? The logic of the legal theory is that the trees have been designated, the paint that was used to create a sigil on each tree trunk was a casein that would encourage the growth of moss since it was painted from the roots to the canopy with the entire watershed. And that was the whole point. Let's see if we can create an altered system that has layers that go from the watershed to how we think about the law. Aviva, in the language that you use for this piece, you talk about performing for the forest. Um, I'm curious to hear how you think about your work functioning if there are no humans on site to engage with it. Let's go back to the premise of Western culture. In anthropocentric thinking, there's man, and usually it is in fact a man, at the center of the universe and everything revolves around the man. But if we go to many indigenous cultures, what we see is that humans are deeply interwoven with their habitat, with their environment, with uh, various concepts of time and even space. That's the overwhelming takeaway, that we're a part of a complex whole. What I found in the making of the Ghost Nets project just some background for you. Aviva's Ghost Net project was a large-scale habitat restoration that took place in the early 90s. 
she had purchased two and a half acres on a fishing island in the Gulf of Maine, where a former coastal town dump had been located. Through conceptual and practical actions, Aviva explored the relationships between soil, land, animal, water, and human. And this is where she developed the trigger point theory that we mentioned earlier. I felt that I was having relationships with rocks. I was communicating with boulders. I was having conversations with water, with wind. Those elements were teaching me. And that was much more interesting than imposing my will. Not only are we only a part of a whole, but we're profoundly dependent on the whole. And the great mythology of anthropocentrism is that it's the other way around, that we get to exploit anything and everything we can get our hands on. And we have seen very recently the consequences of not thinking like that. The consequences of climate change are completely devastating and escalating off the charts. And that's completely the result of uh, pig-headedly pursuing an anthropocentric point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Does it feel like a necessary or integral part of your work that it is actively participating in finding solutions to these problems? None of us is going to save the world by ourselves. If I try to function in isolation, I am completely meaningless and completely ineffective. The moment that I can connect with other people who represent uh, a knowledge space that's way beyond what I can imagine by myself, we are working as a complex adaptive model system to affect reality. And this is a profoundly moving idea to me that I am happy to be a cog in the machinery so long as the machinery is relatively well-oiled with good conversation and good spirits and a spirit of fun and a sense of true idealism about being of service to the whole world, not just myself. Mm. I I want to hear more of your thoughts on what it is about collaboration that you're so drawn to um, or that feels really important to you. Let me try to answer that first on a very personal level. Mm. When I was growing up, my mother and sister and I spent hours and hours around the table talking to each other. And I had mixed feelings about that time. First of all, I thought it was a waste of time. I wanted to be doing something else, something more exciting. But at the same time, I was learning to listen and I was learning to articulate my point of view and I was learning how to have civil discourse. I can't say that as a teenager, I was terribly good at it, but I was learning how to do it. And as a person who lives alone and works alone in my studio, having the opportunity to work collaboratively is fun and it's emotionally gratifying. I I think throughout my life, I've had the experience that it's much more fun to work with other people than to work alone in my studio. It's exciting and it expands the world of possibilities. Huh. 
Aviva, that first part resonated so strongly with me. Um, That feels very similar to how I grew up with my family, where sitting around a table and talking was just a thing that my parents made sure we did. I'll extrapolate just a little bit further on that. I was learning how to create something that is interdependent with the environment, with the objects in the environment, with the people in the environment that was not created for a passive audience, but was conceived for participation. Mm. And that really has guided my entire career, Mm. that model. That's really beautiful. Lastly, Aviva and I talked about how this past year has changed her work, her mindset, and where she wants to go from here. I had an initial response of rage and frustration because I had a studio on Governor's Island for only a limited amount of time. And that time was being stolen by very evident incompetence. When I settled down, I decided that I would get around to a project that had been hanging fire for actually decades, which was to write a work memoir. I was forced to review my career and assess how the parts fit together. Again, like a complex adaptive model. The other thing I was forced to do was to consider, okay, if I'm going to take trigger point theory seriously as an approach to problems, how am I going to apply it to this? And what I eventually came up with was really simple and it wasn't anything new. It was that the way out of this kind of insanity is discourse. And I do think that's one of the things that we have to do. We we have to figure out how to make complexity less scary for people. Hmm. As far as how I came out of this whole year's experience as an artist and how it may have transformed me, uh, what I've thought for years about what's going on with climate change is that we have brought our civilization to the brink of eco-suicide. And our task as artists is to leave something behind for whatever part of humanity remains. Whether we define the remnants of humanity as people who are capable of compassion or as actual numbers of humans who can survive climate change, our task is to preserve something, whether we're preserving habitat or preserving an idea or just preserving a sense of common humanity. So in the end, I came away from this year profoundly humbled and profoundly sobered. And how that serves me, it means that I'm more capable of acceptance.
If you want to hear from our next guest who will be sharing a conversation with Aviva, join us next week on Our Shared Field to meet lawyer and tree tender Marcus Ferreira. Will this host insects? Will that will in turn feed the birds and, and create that wheel of life even here in the heart of the city? You can learn more about the guests and follow their interactions on our website, chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode is composed by Hannah Sellen and featuring cellist Alexandra Jones. The piece you heard, Hirondelle, reimagines the vast intercontinental migration of the graceful barn swallow. You can check out more of their work on our website. Again, that's chat.squarespace.com. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast and to Eric Carbonara at Nada Sound Studio for audio editing. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia on the ancestral lands of the Lenny Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Until next time, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field. Thank you.